0: To the Nurse and Midwife Support Podcast, Your Health Matters. My name's Ellie Brown, the podcast co-host today with Tessa Moriarty. I'm a stakeholder engagement coordinator with Nurse and Midwife Support. I'm a registered nurse. Nurse and Midwife Support is a national support service for nurses, midwives, and students. It is anonymous, confidential, and free. You can call anytime you need support on 1800 667-877 or contact us via the website nmsupport.org.au. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which each of us are listening for, and I pay my respects to First Nations Elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, both contributing and listening today. Sovereignty was never ceded. Today, Tessa and I will be yarning with Leslie Salem and we'll be talking about supporting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives and students. Leslie Salem, 20 years ago, became the first Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurse practitioner. Leslie currently works for Gidgee Healing in far north Queensland and Mornington Island. In 2022, she was awarded a Member of the Order of Australia for her significant service to nursing and Indigenous health. She is also an accomplished artist and writer. Tessa Moriarty will be familiar to our audience as she has co-hosted podcasts and written blogs for the website. She's an experienced mental health nurse, clinician, and an open-water swimmer.
1: Okay, far away. Hi, my name is Leslie Salem. I'm a nurse practitioner and I've been one for about 20 years, a little over now. And I now devote my work to the health of Aboriginal people in Australia, particularly remote and rural, and to the nurses I work with. I'm Wanarua. I'm a nurse practitioner with a deep passion for art, for the iconography and symbolism, which is a language that's being lost within our art. Thank you very much for that, Leslie.
2: Our first question to you is tell us about a bit more about your background and your career as a nurse and a nurse practitioner.
1: I became a nurse by accident. I wanted to be an electrician like my father. I idolised my father since I could ever remember. And he was an electrician and an artist. And I just wanted to be an electrician. So before even the end of year 12, I had done two electronics courses at TAFE. And I was rewinding motors to make a quid in the shed. And I wanted to make some money before I went to university because I got into do electrical engineering. And my best friend said to me, hey, just pretend you want to be a nurse. All Denise ever wanted was to be a nurse. She said, just tell Matron that you really want to be a nurse. And so I did and I was hired and I started on the Monday and that was the end of it. That's where I fell in love with nursing. I had a death on the first day, but it was a planned and it was a lovely death. And that in itself was something I'd never witnessed. And... Then the second day, we had a cardiac arrest and got the man back. Then a few days later, there was a noise and the sister was sitting at her desk reading the Woman's Weekly like you did in those days. And we all ran around and there was a car tooting outside and she said, go and stop that noise. I ran out and opened the back door, as was indicated by the husband screaming, yelling and getting out of the car, and caught a baby as it came out of this woman. And so I went home and my images of me at three in the morning in a cold shed, sitting by myself, rewinding motors, and that I said, this is the most exciting profession on the planet of the earth. And my training in a country hospital just solidified it every day I worked. I loved it. I was proud of what I did and I loved it and I loved my nurse colleagues. And I guess in a country hospital, we got to do more than was usual in urban hospitals because there were no helicopters or retrieving people quickly. And you'd call a doctor on a Saturday night and he would come in, not straight away. So by third year, we were intubating and cannulating. We were suturing. We were doing everything. And I just knew the power of nursing straight away then, just knew it.
2: Wow, how many years? And by the way, what country hospital?
1: What was it? Thesnock District Hospital. It was an amazing place. Maternity services in those days, everything. So training was really well-rounded, but nursing was a powerhouse. There were no interns and residents and registrars or anything, and people were really well looked after, and you saw somebody completely get well in those days. I feel for our new students. They never get to see anybody well. They get to see somebody well enough to go home to home hospital. So they never get to see the incredible work that they do in there reach fruition, and that's a really sad thing for a lot of our nurses. How do you get satisfied when you're not seeing the end result of your work? And and I also realise that we're the healers. When a doctor comes in, barely glances at something, and puts a stroke of genius on a medication chart for six minutes. We're the ones who give it, we monitor it, we see if it works or doesn't work. We see how it'll affect the patient in cost or can they actually get the script. We look at all that and I could see from the very start that we were the true healers. It wasn't medicine healing people. It was us. They can operate on somebody, but we're the ones who did the rehab and looked after people and made them better and educated them and made them aware and made them feel safe and made them feel that they could come back. So I was gifted with this beautiful education to start with. Yes. Yeah. Then I went to a larger urban setting down at Newcastle because I wanted to learn more. I just wanted to learn a lot more. And I was really lucky to land in Renal where the nephrologists there actually did the postgraduate course. The nephrologists all taught it themselves and they gave us the capacity through protocols that we could initiate our own bloods, interpret it and respond to that. And so for many years, I went to every meeting I could about advanced practice. And then when I said I was going to go to be a nurse practitioner, that I was doing all this, I was sent to registrar training school in Sydney one day every month for 10 years. I was the only one never graduated. But that was the belief that these specialists had in us. And so as soon as we were able to apply, I applied and then 19 had failed before me. And I was lucky I got through, but I loved my work. I liked knowing a lot and I had the head of pharmacology from Sydney Uni and medicine and oh, the questions they asked were not about patient care, but how many Daltons does this drug break down into and how would you remove it if they poison themselves? It's weird and wonderful things. And I actually like reading that. So I got through. So I was number 13. You were really
2: on a trajectory of really a highly specialised nursing career from a, right in your, your training days, weren't you? Probably more so than nurses that were trained in non-remote areas and in city Absolutely. And
1: areas. Absolutely. Yeah. And we had fierce champions at Cessnock Hospital, fierce champions of nurses who knew their worth. And knew they did the work and who believed in themselves. And that founding, well, that doesn't leave you. And then to come into a nephrology service that, after a few stints in other places, but where even the cleaner had to come to the meeting because the head nephrologist, Ranjit Nanra, believed that we were all part of a pizza that made that complete circle around the patient. And there was never a hierarchy. And he made sure every registrar and resident knew it. There was no hierarchy in there. And we had to attend the full rounds the senior nurse and any other nurse that was able. And we would be asked questions of equal value of everyone and testing all the time. So for the first 30 years of my career, we were equal.
0: Yes. It was as simple as
1: that. Yeah.
0: Leslie, many who have honoured you have said because of her we can. And I would just like to know from you, what is it like to lead the way?
1: I don't think of myself as leading the way. I hope that I'm just influencing people. To be what they can for nurses to be leaders. We are the greatest workforce and we're the healers. We still have to have a legislative collaborative agreement. No other professional has this. So, what I hope I'm doing is not leading people, but influencing them absolutely, influencing them. And as far as mentoring goes, you bring anybody to me, I will mentor because these are the people who will look after me as I get older. And so, I want to teach every single nurse to be empowered to look after me like I would like to be looked after to be a voice to not be a handmaid and not to be a profession in hospitals where we're now broken into tasks that somebody will come in and wash for you so you can be run off your feet doing these things well that's wrong when we do a shower we can see that they can actually do it themselves and if there's any deficit in their movements and if they're continent or incontinent so if i do anything i'm not leading i'm influencing i just hope i'm one of those modern influencers i just want every nurse in this country to realize we're the powerhouse we're the big numbers we're the healers every simple task we do is not simple because in under the holistic way nurses look at everything we are judging everything in terms of kind of mentoring and
2: increasing the number particularly of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurse practitioners in particular, the numbers in comparison to the country as a whole is quite low. In, in fact, whether this is in, indicative of the true number at this point in time, there's approximately about 15 mm-hmm. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurse practitioners. And that's a number that's on Katsunim's website. Yes. Yeah. How do we get more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander as practitioners? It starts
1: with the growth of our students as undergraduates. It's the growth that believe in what you can do. I thank God that I did oral vivas because I've got mild adult dyslexia and I can't write I I can't write for crap. Any book I've published, you'll see another name there with me. And it's usually my best friend Barb Harvey, who takes me through every paragraph and says, What are you trying to say here? But we need encouragement and as long as our universities are Western models where our oral, I could have given 50,000 words without a problem and I could have had my notes in front of me and referenced any talk that I give along the way and I don't know what it is but I can't get it from my head to paper and there's no consideration for anyone with learning difficulties or anything and so a lot of our good nurses who don't have that, that ability to write feel that they're left out and leave new ways of learning, bringing back oral vivas, letting somebody talk or show what they can do. A lot of our Aboriginal nurses will feel left out, particularly from our rural and remote areas, because universities do nothing but to embrace a different way of learning. And I was lucky in country hospitals, there was an oral viva to everything. I barely passed any written thing, but we were so lucky. Every PTS stage, everything up, we had to do an oral viva. And thank God, because I could talk. It's just about being flexible in the way that people do learn. But it's not so much that. People, like a lot of Aboriginal nurses, will soak it up in the classroom. But it's about reflecting back. How do you get it reflected back? Through what exam technique, through what way do we actually
0: spread it back? Thanks, Leslie. In the article in the A&MJ in October 2021, let's talk about racism. Yep. You talked of not ticking the box on your Aboriginal identity when applying for jobs. You also talked about the racist comments of colleagues on the achievement of your qualifications and the discriminatory treatment of a darker-skinned Aboriginal nurse and staff who overlooked the treatment and care of Indigenous patients.
1: Yeah. And it is still alive and well. And when we're at our Cats and M meetings, we all relate the things that come out. And even it's that consideration that if an Aboriginal person gets something, you've ticked the box. They've obviously you filled a quota. That's constantly the thing that you fill the quota. And I knew that was alive and well. So I never ticked. I deliberately didn't tick it for over I don't know, ten or more years. Because I was on a path and I knew and plus when I left Sessnock Hospital in the early 80s, I found that when people knew, I would be asked to go to every ward, everywhere, and it still continued even though I didn't tick the box, but all of a sudden every Aboriginal person before we had the CLOs in the hospitals, it was get Leslie and no idea like that that mob isn't my mob. I've got no idea. Well, you do. You have a better way of just understanding their fears and different things. But instead of them, instead of people trying hard themselves to understand, it was automatically your problem. And nobody let you off your own workload. And then whoever you were seeing, they then have an expectation that you are going to make everything flow properly. And then if not, then there's you've got payback. And it's just normal bitterness with people. People do pay back all the time, whether you're Aboriginal or not. If something goes wrong, they're going to sue, they hate you, they'll argue with nurses. Nurses cop crap all the time. That's payback? It's alive and well in every culture. But now you've taken on more that this mob think that you're going to look after them uh, because you've been asked to go up there or the numb would ask you to go somewhere and all of a sudden you've got this added cultural responsibility. And that's just racist that people don't think that they can handle it or try it themselves or question a person or do anything. And watching when I've heard so many reports, oh, Bed 1 is this lovely 87-year-old. She had a a fistula and her daughter stayed with her last night. and She's really lovely. We've had to give her a few things for pain, but she's okay. Bed 2 is an Aboriginal man who was in jail 10 years ago for drug use who hasn't done a thing wrong for 10 years. And it's always the race card comes up every single time and he's been asking for more pain relief. I think he's only after drugs. And on this one particular case I heard that stated, that man had bled into his arm and they hadn't gone into him all night. All night. They had pressed the button on the automatic blood pressure machine in the room and hadn't even gone in to review him. Just assumed that he was in jail 10 years ago, so he's only after drugs. You don't hear, oh, this person is Scottish-Japanese heritage in bed one. The fact that you're saying it, not even a way that's appropriate. If this man's an Awabical man. This is his country. He has relatives here. No.
2: Earlier you talked about, if I can actually put it, the tardiness or perhaps the laziness that the professions have, the nursing profession, some in the nursing profession can have. Let's say more than we're happy to say the responsibility on nurses like yourselves and others who are Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander to know, to inform, to educate, or kind of rather than actually do that ourselves. It's there's yeah. the
1: responsibility We have our. a double workload and a hidden workload all the time. And the more people call on you, your workload is double that of anybody else. And there's just so many institutional and on-the-ground racism, which people don't reflect on. So when you act on a bias, it becomes racist. So you don't act on your bias. You've got to be able to say, I've got a bias here. Why did I say that? Or what am I saying that could be interpreted wrong? And the institutional racism, well, that's so alive. And well, we get all these things. This patient failed for the second time to turn up to the specialist appointment. They have been removed from that. Now, they know that standard across the board. It does them no harm to leave them on the specialist list. Have they got any idea when your death rate, when the age of death is between 49 and 55 between Dumaji and Mornington, how many children's funerals they go to a week and they are related to them? and they're related to the people, and they're fearful of going out and the work we try and do to get on, and they're kicked off because they don't have shoes or anything. And yet this institutional racism, I mean, even though they go, why do they bother referring them? They won't turn up. They will eventually. They will. They'll get sick enough. They will reflect enough. They will be supported enough that we'll get them there. And only less than a quarter of people in Doomadgee and Mornington get Centrelink payments. So, oh, let's send them out to a town with no money, no shoes, no support to go to a specialist appointment that they can't understand and then we wonder why it takes us a while to get them out there. So there's just this institutional racism absolutely everywhere. They know a trend of something and yet they fail to act upon it.
2: Yes. Have there been improvements? Like have there been any inroads? Is it still the same as it was when you were training? Have we made any inroads? Have there been any improvements whatsoever?
1: Yeah, well, they're not put out on the veranda anymore or anything like that. And where my father couldn't get alone as a young fellow to start his own business, things have improved like that. But when you're looking at the treatment our patients get when they present to larger cities, it is a bother and my niece is looking in at some research at the moment. people are our mob are kicked out of, oh well, not, they're discharged appropriately from acute mental institutions. But what is done about their social and emotional well-being? There's still nothing about social and emotional well-being. Do you have somewhere to go home to? Are you couch surfing? Is it appropriate to let this? Because the value markers are, are they hearing voices, the speed of their speech, the, everything? But Not social and emotional. And that's a huge thing to send people back to remote rural areas, particularly Aboriginal people, who will poorly articulate that because they have been used to it. That informant, that I'm sorry, but that's just a form of racism. Just get them out of here. Send them back on a plane. They can yeah. be taken care of back there. And knowing the circumstances are far worse, yeah, it bugs me. So what do we
2: need to do still
1: as a collective... Oh. You gave me all the money in the world I'd spend it on the school. Education. Informed. When you're educated, you make better choices. You preserve culture better. So at this point, what we have in, and I've worked in white, poor socioeconomic areas as well, up on Coldale and Tamworth and that. And so it's this circular way people live. They live in a constant circle of a rich past and the current. And only in in the current and it's what you can eat, feel, see, hear, taste, your senses. It's what can I do today to make myself feel better. There's nothing future in anything in poorer communities and the old missions and that, except for a few who many have broken out and I've worked in some beautiful places, Wall Hollow and that, but where future became embedded in it. So when you're looking at health, that's future orientated. Everything about your health is future orientated. When you look at school, that's future orientated. Why bother go to school if you're not thinking about a future. Saving money is future orientated. So if you were to tell me how you change everything, how you learn a language of being non-discriminatory and everything else, it starts with school. And I think we should just embed everything and try and get more than 40% of kids to school in remote areas. And we teach cultural respect for all cultures, age culture, religious, race. We teach respect for culture and, and make it understood. Teach people how when they're kids to reflect on how you're feeling and what can be done. But education is the first thing into a future. And so that becomes really important. So, like I said, investing in your health, how does it affect you today? All the treatments, how it will make you feel better today and start then education on future things. But I would put all money into school with kids. I think education is the most important thing on the planet of the earth. My father was a lifelong learner, and even at sixty nine, his last major course was a fine arts degree. But he had so many courses up his sleeve all of his life because learning was everything. And I think he's right.
2: You're talking about education that's wider than the professions of nursing and midwifery. You, you know, you're yeah. taking that back to the education of everybody. Yeah.
1: Everybody, because that's where our nurses will come from and our doctors and our allied health and our health workers and everything. It will come from the schools and it's about us molding into one, a smooth transition from one to another. We've gotten so many kids out to the private schools from the remote areas now, well, private public schools, but with housing. And we're getting more and more, which is phenomenal. And some of them are coming back. And quite a few are coming back and starting tiny little things up because home is home. Yeah. So, But you may lose some, but they will influence others. And I think it has to be that smooth transition between school, TAFEs, unis. It's one thing. You're going through on a smooth thread. When I talk to people, a lot of the young girls up at doing and Mornington, it's overwhelming for them to think about applying for something, to get in, and it's, yeah, I just think education is the key to absolutely everything, but it's how we educate and how
0: we test knowledge.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, this year there'll be a referendum on an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice to parliament. Shouldn't be there. Involving a change why, to the constitution. Why did you have to vote
1: to count me as human when I was seven? Why did people have to vote to take me off the flora and fauna? Why did that have to come about? Why did we have to vote that gay people can get married? They're not referendums. It should just be done. It is right or it is wrong. Yes, of course it will be a yes vote from me, but why does this have to be done? Why did all the white people in this country have to vote me at seven years of old when I was seven so that I wouldn't be counted as flora or fauna? in this country, for God's sake, why did we have to vote for people to love each other and be married? Now, why do we have to ask that a First Nations people of a country be allowed a voice?
2: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And
1: I'm sorry, but this shouldn't be a referendum. This should simply just be the same as, and I could go through many referendums, but I'm sorry, at one point it becomes humanity an That's obligation right. to humanity. But, yeah. yes, how grateful were my, my dad and nan and, that they weren't counted as animals anymore. Never have had to come this path. We should never have had to
2: done the, do this at all. No. And we are. And yeah. in this year of the referendum, as a collective, you know, we've got a huge profession, nurses and midwives, is big across the country what do we need to do for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people but also for nurses and
1: midwives? Look, I do understand that a referendum allows you to change legislation. I understand that, but at times it just is very frustrating that that legislation was ever put there or that there was no recognition to start with. But it's just simply a yes. It's an absolute yes. And the details of it will be sorted out later. We need voices from rural, remote, urban... We need voices of people who live very traditionally and those who don't. But you're not wrong if you're an Aboriginal person living in a city. It's just your perspective is different. And the issues and responsibilities in your life and the problems you face are just different. And that's why we need all perspectives. So it's just a yes from me. And I do understand that a referendum is needed to change legislation, but I just think it's sad that we ever had to get to a point where that you count people as human, that you allow gay marriage, that you allow the Aboriginal people of this country to have a voice in its own governance.
2: And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives, how can those of us, how can we support the wellbeing of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives?
1: Recognising that they're facing many more issues than you realise. And it may be for some, I've got such quiet health workers that find it hard to articulate things. It's empowering some of them. I've got a health worker that is just shining at the moment. We've empowered her. We've looked at her work. We've empowered her to triage our patients. And she is now finding more issues with patients than what they're presenting with. So it's empowering. It's not making them feel threatened by the current system, but empowering and looking at how can we best support you. And it may not be in a big yarning circle where there's a lot of shame in admitting that you're suffering. It might be one on one. It's finding common ground with people like all people and then exploring issues through that common ground, whether it's a patient coming in and asking them how their fishing's been going or the footy or or how the kids or it's exploring then what's bringing you in and you look a bit tired or leaving doors open for people to have conversations. And I think that's an art form that is missing with a lot of people, that art of conversation to open people up. Yes, yes,
0: yes. We could talk for hours. <laughs> <laughs> you mean I, I
1: could on for
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, um, yeah, words of wisdom. For us, any any further advice and words of wisdom that you have for
1: yep. us? Education, education for our young kids, education for our nurses, be a lifelong learner, be an empowerer, mentor, mentor everyone because I learn so much through mentoring. I just love it. If I don't know a question and they don't know the answer and I don't know the answer, then we explore it together. People should never shy away from mentoring because this is the group that will look after us when we're old. But empower nurses to believe that we are the true healers. We are the greatest workforce. Never let anyone break us down into tasks because what we do is about the whole person. We don't do tasks. We're judging, we're critically thinking we're seeing how they swallow the tablet, we're seeing how they do everything. And so never let us be broken down into tasks ever, ever. And one more thing, one of the things I think the only tiny thing I think is lost in our unis is, is our psychological skills. So I was made to go with this assistant in nursing when I was training. So I was made to go with this assistant in nursing and there was a a man who was dying and I was in third year and I was so cocky, I knew everything. Anyway, I was really disgusted that I had to be below this assistant in nursing and it took me several days to figure it out. She could be in a room with people when they were struggling with somebody dying. She could be in that room when they asked a question, included the person who was unconscious in the conversation. She displayed not only sympathy, but empathy. She displayed kindness. She displayed courage when it was time to make people listen or do things. And when I finally went out to one of the most wonderful nurse sisters that I work with, Sister Bromwich, I said, I think I get it. You've got to use your powers in your head to And she went, and she said, so I now make nearly everybody I mentor give me 500 words or 200 words on how you saw a psychological skill used to achieve a treatment, to get a history out, to do anything. Because there's so many psychological skills. You aren't born with sympathy or empathy or kindness. You aren't born with the ability to educate to a lot of people or be commanding. You're not born with those skills. And these psychological skills are the only thing I think are missing because they are part of our repertoire for treatment. Yes. And there becomes a point when empathy becomes dangerous, where all of those things become wrong. And so it's knowing and learning when to use the skill, when it's appropriate and when it's not welcomed and when it's everything. And so if I could say anything, please look at your psychological skills and know when to use them.
0: Thank you again, Leslie. No worries. Really enjoyed the chat today. I just want to acknowledge the impressive work over 25 years that the Congress of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Nurses and Midwives have done to support and advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses and midwives.
1: Yes, yeah, they've students. empowered me. They've, it feels like you're home when you go to the meetings. We talk the same issues. We come up with solutions. Yes, yeah,
0: they're wonderful. They are. That's all for today's podcast. Please remember, support is available whenever you need it on Nursing Midwife Support, 1-800-667-877. The service is anonymous, confidential and free, and you can call 24-7. You can also connect Via the website nurse and your health matters. Thank you.